Our reading this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 16, from verse 16 to 33. That is John 16, 16 to 33. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I say, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn into joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I'll see you again and you'll rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying anything I, that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming and in fact has come when you'll be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nemi, and good morning, everybody. Great to see you here. Um, wonderful to have the chance to speak this morning from that great passage. Um, the next couple of themes in our series, we've kind of been doing what seem to be contrasts in Jesus. Um, the next theme, our theme this morning is joy and grief joy and grief, two things that we see very much in Jesus' life, and of course, two things that we experience very much in our own lives as well. How do we hold both life's joys and life's griefs? How is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life for us in all the complexity we face in our lives day to day? Well, we've heard from John 16. Jesus helps us so much in this passage. He really helps us so much. So keep it open if you um, have it in your, um, your Bible or your phone or whatever. We're going to just take a moment to get to grips with what's happening in the passage, and then we're going to consider ourselves in the light of it. 
So in this chapter, in John 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night just before his crucifixion. And he's preparing his friends for what is about to come for them. In just a few hours, Jesus is going to be snatched away from them. They're going to see their friend arrested and then brutally executed. And he's preparing them for that. He says, verse 20, disciples, my friends, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. The rest of Jerusalem is going to be busy celebrating Passover, great feast for all the family. But the disciples are going to be distraught. They will be completely hollowed out at the loss of Jesus. He says, verse 22, now is your time for grief. So he's very, very upfront about what's coming for them. But you might have noticed it. Jesus started this little section in verse 16 by saying this, slightly strange phrase. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. He is going to be taken away, but they're going to see him again. And Jesus is talking about his resurrection from the dead, his resurrection. So verse 20, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Verse 22, now is your time for grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. And I love this phrase, no one will take away your joy. No one will take away your joy. So he's preparing his friends for both grief and joy. He's going, but he's returning. There's his death, then there's his resurrection. Make sense so far? Okay, good. Now, most commentators on this passage um, also say that Jesus is warning them about something else. There's something else he's getting them to look forward to, which is that even after he's returned in his resurrection, he will be going away again. He's going to ascend to heaven. And the church is going to be without his physical presence again. He's going to be absent physically again. And so even now for us who believe... There is a kind of grief, a kind of pining or a mourning while we're not with Jesus. He's away from us in that way. But then, again, after this time of grief, he will return. That's also a promise in this passage. We will see Jesus again, just like the disciples did. We will see him again when he returns in glory. And on the last day, there will be a day of celebration a day of relief, a day of freedom, and we'll be with Jesus again, this time forever, forever. And so this is quite a profound pattern that he's sort of sketching out in this passage. The holding together of grief and joy, both of those things, for the disciples at the cross and then the resurrection, and for all of us now, today, with Jesus' physical absence from us, but his return that's coming one day soon. And there's just two things I want us to see in all of this. Having just looked at that passage just really briefly, I want us to concentrate on just two principles. First thing, grief and joy are parallel. Grief and joy are parallel. Now that is pretty apparent in everyday life, isn't it? Um, if um, If I think back to when I was young, Um, I would say I thought life was basically pretty good 
and occasionally something bad might happen or something sad might happen. Um, but I sort of thought, if you just hold on through those little sad patches, eventually everything will go back to being normal and good. And as I got older, I realised that isn't how it works. You may have discovered this for yourself. The more life you live, the more people who are precious to you, the more of the world you see, the more you realise that sadness and trouble are as normal as the good times, or as normal as the happy stuff. We don't really get in our life sort of long uh, patches of undiluted bliss that are just punctuated occasionally by little struggles. No, it's, it's more that, that common saying that's been said, joy and grief are like parallel train tracks in our life, that they are both present in some way almost all of the time. More and more, my experience has been that the two are just present in life, and sometimes one or other of them kind of outweighs the other for a bit of a time, and then it, things change, and it's just mostly a constant mixed bag of, of the two. I don't know if that feels familiar to you. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that complexity? Let's, let's look at Jesus. He has the answer. In John 16, he's talking about his own death and his own resurrection. He's talking about his own grief and his own joy. See, Jesus' passion, his death and his resurrection, that was actually the, the culmination of a whole life lived with us as one of us. Jesus' whole life on earth is him sharing in all that you and I face day to day. So on the one hand, let's think about this. Jesus lived a life of overflowing joy. Think of Jesus' life. He, he turned water into wine so that that party in Cana didn't have to stop early. He multiplied loaves and fishes for the crowds. The way Jesus spoke and his kindness just delighted everybody around him, from little children to like the theological experts to the people who were outcasts. People were just magnetically drawn to Jesus, especially people who felt they were generally excluded everywhere else. He drew people in. He healed. He forgave. He set them free. He, he, he was like a, a fountain of life and happiness that just poured out of him the whole time that everyone could see. He compared himself to the groom at a wedding, celebrating a feast with his friends and his family. Jesus had and he said that he wanted to give life in all its fullness. Jesus' joy sprang from his eternal relationship with his Father in heaven. He had known his Father's love for him since before the foundation of the world. Jesus knew the Father's love. And because he knew the Father's pleasure in him, he was able to be secure and relaxed and warm with like everybody else around him, because that was right with his father. He could be like he was to everyone else. And Jesus' joy sprang from his eternal relationship with the Holy Spirit. So interesting, I've just been enjoying that this week, how Jesus' joy is so often associated with the Spirit. Classic verses, Luke 10, 21, listen to this. Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Hebrews 1.9, Jesus filling with the spirit, we're told, is him being anointed with the oil of joy 
above everybody else. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.11 says that God is the blessed, or maybe better, the happy God. The happy God. God, Father, Son, Spirit, they love and enjoy fellowship together, perfect communion, in eternal joy. God is happy. God is happy. And Jesus Christ is the living, breathing, walking demonstration of that overflowing, joyful life. Jesus is the Lord of joy. But Jesus is also the man of sorrows, Isaiah says, and familiar with pain. Jesus knew weakness. Jesus knew temptation. Jesus knew suffering. Jesus went toe-to-toe with Satan himself in the wilderness. His heart was broken by the sin and the suffering of the people that he met. He ached for the people of Israel who did not recognize him. He wept at the graveside of his close friend, Lazarus. Think of this, Jesus, even today in his glory in heaven, is a man whose last meeting with one of his best friends was the moment that friend betrayed him. And all of his other friends we see in this passage abandoned him. Scripture tells us, even in his resurrection body, Jesus bears the scars of the nails that fixed him to the cross. As we sometimes sing, Jesus is the king of broken hearts. The reality in Jesus' life and in our life is a journey of grief and joy together in parallel. At the end of our passage, verse 33, Jesus says, very realistically, in this world, you will have trouble. Even though he's just said to the disciples, when I'm raised, you're going to have joy nobody can take away. He's already said that, but he says, in this world, you will have trouble. He's not saying, if you trust me, nothing is ever going to be tough for you again. Nothing's ever going to be difficult or painful. He's not saying that. He's saying, you're also going to have trouble, joy and grief together a lot of the time. Jesus is so realistic about that in a way that, do you know what? Sometimes I think we Christians aren't. He's realistic about it in a way we aren't. We sometimes, um, we kind of, we feel more comfortable to hide away our grief, our sufferings, our struggles, because we want to sort of show a good face to one another. Um, We can quite easily be quite glib about our sadness and our sorrow. You know, chin up, God is good. I'm hanging in there, praise the Lord. I'm like, do you really mean that? And it's almost like we try and brush past it because we don't quite have the tools to face it head on that I am really down. I am truly sad. We might not have the tools to face it, but Jesus does. Jesus does. And you know, if we're going to be healthy as Christians and if we're going to be healthy as a church family, we need to be honest and direct about what we're going through with each other. I want to share something about myself to to illustrate this, if that's okay. Um, It was interesting, I was moved just listening to that video a moment ago. About seven years ago, I found myself in the GP's office uh, being diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And um, if I'm honest, that felt like a complete shock to me. 
I didn't know what was going on. Um, the story for me was, I'd just been ordained. Um, I was a new curate here at St. Aldate's. <laughs> I just began to um, oversee the student ministry with great colleagues. Um, I was lining up to do a, a PhD in theology. I was teaching part-time at Union, where Stephen's already mentioned I work. These are all things I loved. I was excited about it all. I was like, I'd worked hard for it all. It was like, this finally going to start doing all the things that you know, I've been working towards for so long. And yet here I am. I'm down. I'm anxious. I would say, for me, the, the, sort of, the way I've described it is life just felt grey. Life just felt grey. And I was thinking, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian leader. I'm a Christian leader now. I'm, I'm generally an upbeat, happy, kind of together kind of person. Surely I, sh- I shouldn't be feeling like this. And what I learned um, during that time was, I wasn't actually a together kind of person, whatever that is. I'm not sure they exist. Um, and, importantly, I did not need to be a together kind of person to be a Christian or to do what the Lord had called me to do. Um, friends in this church got around me and cared for me and loved me. And <laughs> if I'm honest, I was a bit surprised when I sort of wasn't relieved of my ministry duties. You know, I wasn't sent, why don't you just go home and uh, don't come back? I, I really thought that might happen to me. Um, but it turned out I could be weak and be part of this church family. I could be weak and still serve. It was such a relief to me to be able to be open about how I was doing in a real way. And at that time, I learned to sing and really mean the line we sometimes sing, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. That's what I felt at that time. And I loved, loved to sing the old hymn. How liberating you could sing these words to God. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. I learned that Jesus can work with weary souls. Jesus can work with hope. That is sort of hope, but it's fainting. I learned that Christ-like community, this church, can embrace both grief and joy. We can do that. And a church at its best can do that. We can celebrate like mad at a baptism service. We can party when a couple from among us get engaged. We can cheer when someone lands the job they dreamed of. And some of us in church will be doing all those things while we're the one whose loved one is still far from the Lord. When we're the one who is longing to be in a relationship or when we're the one who's just been made redundant. And we love and we stand with those people, and they love and stand with us. And somehow, in the church of Jesus, who is the Lord of joy and the man of sorrows, we learn to sort of hold these things all together in this one family. Romans 12, 15, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we mourn with those who mourn. It is complex. It's not always easy. But knowing Jesus and knowing his love is the only way this can work. Being with him is the way we can be real with one another about how we're doing, not being fake, not wearing shiny, happy Christian masks, but honestly, deeply sharing with each other in the highs and the lows. Isn't that what we really need in a a church family? The head of the church is Lord of joy and man of sorrows. 
joy and grief in parallel, in him, in us, and in his church. By his grace, let's hold on to him and hold on to one another in it all. That's the first thing, grief and joy parallel. Second thing, and I've only got two. Second thing, I fasten your seatbelts. Grief will be eclipsed by joy. That is Jesus' promise in this passage. Grief will be eclipsed by joy. One day, those parallel lines are going to do what parallel lines are not supposed to do. (laughs) One is going to meet the other, and joy is going to wipe out grief forever. John 16, 22, Jesus says, Now is your time for grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Remember, these verses are um, partly talking about Jesus' return to his disciples in the resurrection. They're partly talking about the end of history when Jesus returns. Verse 23 is a classic biblical way of pointing to all that. In that day. In that day. Those two days, the day of Jesus' resurrection, Easter Sunday, and the day of his return, the day that's coming, they're linked. Because what Jesus bought for us in his first coming, everything that Jesus achieved for us in the cross and resurrection, we will receive in full at his second coming. When he returns, when Jesus comes again on the clouds, you and I will be raised to life. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. Because Jesus was raised, we who believe will be raised. And when he returns, the whole universe, he says, will be flooded with life out of death, light out of darkness, perfect goodness instead of evil, and joy instead of grief. That is what Jesus has come to achieve for us. And that is what he's going to bring. Now, I hope you don't mind, but I need to take a Christian sacred cow to the abattoir now. (laughs) This is a line that you might have heard, and I don't think this is true, and I don't think it helps us. Here it is. We sometimes say... Happiness and joy are different things. Happiness is all sort of light and fluffy, and you can really feel it, but it's sort of fleeting and passing, while joy, joy is deeper and more spiritual. It's an oft-repeated line, but it's not a scriptural distinction. You won't find it in the Bible. You won't find it really in Christian history either, that separation between happiness and joy. Now, I think the idea is to try and say, look, there is such a thing as a happiness that is sort of passing and frivolous, and that what God's interested in is a real long-term joy. Okay, I get, I get the point of it. But the danger of that little separation that we often speak about is we can think God is not interested in our happiness. He's only interested in this slightly intangible wafty, religious thing called joy. So it's as if, for myself, the thrill of when somebody wheels out the roast potatoes or just the whoosh of just joy when George Ford bangs over a drop goal from the halfway line. The buzz you've got when you're with 
your best friends or your closest family, watching your favourite film at Christmas, whatever it is, it's as if we almost think that's nothing to God. It doesn't care about those things. And we just get quite pious about it all. Life is hard, but I'm not meant to be happy. I'm supposed to have a deep joy that nobody can explain. Nobody can see. I can't feel. And that prevents us from doing a good theology of grief. It prevents us from letting God take the gospel and touch our sadness with it. We kind of give ourselves an excuse to be pessimistic and live in a kind of unsanctified downer. And we let ourselves believe God doesn't mind me feeling this way. So long as we have joy. But what does the scripture tell us about what God really wants to do for us in the end? When it all comes down to it, and let's ground this in real detail, when Jesus returns, what does scripture say it's going to feel like for you? What's Jesus actually going to do for you when he returns? And it could be today, right? Just think about that. It could be today that Jesus returns. What happens next? Revelation 21 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. On the day Jesus appears, you will have cried your last tear. You will have been in pain for the last time you will have suffered your last bereavement. You will have had your last battle with sin and temptation. Jesus will personally wipe your tears away and comfort you. He's going to give us on that day a world with no more threat of danger, disease and death. Satan and suffering and sin will be distant memories for us. And Isaiah 35.10, everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. No one will take away your joy. That is the cast iron promise of Jesus. And what kind of a God promises things like that. A God who wants you to be genuinely happy, not a pious, floaty, elusive, religious joy. This is just how good God is. He cares about your happiness. He wants to make you truly, lastingly happy in him, knowing his love and his joy forever. Has anyone ever seen the film uh, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel? Um, I love the little phrase from that film, everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it's not yet the end. (laughs) If you put your trust in Jesus, you can say, the best is yet to come. Christian can always say that, the best is yet to come. The final happy chapter is yet to be written. On that day, your joy will eclipse your grief forever. While our 
Griefs and joys are parallel at the moment. We experience them at the same time. It's not always easy, is it, to keep that perspective, that eternal perspective. It's not easy to live like one day our griefs will be gone. And to help us, one of the greatest ways Jesus has given to keep this hope in front of us is the meal that we're just about to share together, Holy Communion, which brings us to the cross. When Jesus died, the man of sorrows took our sin and he took our griefs into himself and he he carried them away. And going through death and into resurrection life, he secured your eternal joy with him. And on the night of his crucifixion, Jesus gave his friends bread and wine, his body and his blood. And he's commanded us Christians to eat and drink often to remember that first day, his death and his resurrection. And to keep on celebrating this meal until he comes again when we will be raised. And so as you eat and drink in just a moment, I want to encourage you, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus with all your grief and with all your joy, all your fears, all your fainting hopes. Hide them away in him. Place yourself again in the story of Jesus' grief and Jesus' joy, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. He died in pain and sorrow and he rose in glory and victory and he will come again. Remember his death until he comes. And as we eat and drink, let's fix our eyes on him and on this hope that is before us. Jesus has made the depths of grief into the heights of joy. And a day is coming when we will see our Saviour again. No one will take away your joy. Amen.